Welcome back to Recorded Conversations. I'm your host, Danielle Kingstrom, and you're now joining the podcast that is dedicated to compassionately considering all perspectives while engaging in authentic and connected conversations. I hope you enjoy today's show. You are now joining episode eight. And before we jump into the conversation with the next guest, I just wanted to give a little special thank you to the previous guests that I've had on my show. First and foremost, my husband, Corey, I appreciate how you're always willing to join me for a conversation, even on days when we might have had a little bit of an argument. But to the other guests, Perry Willis, Will Rucker, Cordell Winrow, and today's guest, Seth Price, I just want to say thank you for helping me introduce a new way for people to have conversations, even if we don't always agree on everything. Perry Willis brought to us the understanding that there is more than meets the eye when talking about aliens and extraterrestrial life. We also dug into the backfire effect and talked about how that has a lot of influence on how we are reactionary people instead of reflective people. Will Rucker joined the show and we talked about enlightening and what it means to take our energy in motion and express the emotion. We also talked about how we have choice and how we either reflect or react to certain things that are affecting us. And then when Cordell Winrow joined us, we discussed how our issues are in our tissues and how we should see obstacles as opportunities and tension, resistance, and opposition as the quickest path to growth. Today's episode, we discuss how we can be better listeners, what we've learned by listening from others. We talk a little bit about Alexa and Big Brother. We talked about what truth is, and we even talk a little bit about Grey's Anatomy. And spoiler alert, Seth will kill the love affair that you have with Grey's Anatomy, if you pay attention. Uh, I'm actually in the middle of binge-watching Grey's Anatomy when we had a conversation about it, and I'm just going to tell you, a little piece of me died after he revealed what he did, and the show confirmed it for me. So, with that being said... I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Please remember that if you're interested in additional podcasts, those are available on my Patreon page and all of my contact information will be available at the end of this episode. So without further ado, enjoy today's conversation with Seth Price, host of Can I Say This at Church? One of my dear, dear friends and just a remarkable person in general. So I want to say welcome and thank you, Seth Price, who is the host of the Can I Say This at Church podcast, for joining us today here on Recorded Conversations. Hello, Seth. Hello, Danielle. How are you? I'm good. I'm your Monday. I'm your Monday's good. Yeah, it's been busy. It's been a very busy Monday, but my Mondays are always busy. Manic Mondays? Uh, no, I just have too much on the plate. So between work, homework, karate for the boy. Uh, mm. And then I go back to church at 7.30 to get ready to lead worship on Sunday, which I literally just sat down from. And then it takes me hours to unwind starting at like nine o'clock on a Monday night before wow. I can even go to bed. Yeah. Do you not, do you only get like four or five hours of sleep? I usually do five hours of sleep uh, for like two or three weeks in a row. 
And then I'll have like one Saturday that I get like eight or nine and I'm ready to go again for another couple weeks. Wow. It's been like that my whole life though. I think I do stuff like that where I just get bare minimum sleep. And then sometimes I'm like, all right, we got to, we got to get some sleep this week. And then it's okay. And then that following week, I'm going to get as much done as I can. I don't know that it's bare minimum because like if I go to bed at nine o'clock, I will wake up at three or four in the morning. And if I go to bed at 11, I'll just wake up at five. And so like it it annoys my wife. Like she'll literally be like, can you just not come to bed right now? Because I want to sleep until eight o'clock tomorrow. (laughs) So if you could not come to bed till like midnight or if you could just set up your own room and (laughs) don't interrupt me. (laughs) Yeah. 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 Because she needs she's one of those ones that she just needs more sleep than I do. But it's fine. It lets me, you know, do the dishes or do uh, reading or whatever I need to do. So. Or prepare notes for your podcast. Mm, there are lots of notes. Yeah. I, I'm i curious. How, what what inspired you to host a podcast? I mean, I know why I did it. And at, at times I feel like I'm just mimicking other people. But there, for me, there was something that kind of provoked me inside that told me to do it. So I'm wondering, did you have that? Was there something that convicted you that you wanted to just share messages in a different way? What was it for you? Um. Well... So that's a bigger story, but effectively, like I have a small group of friends and mm-hmm. we were having really, really personal conversations, like in a, in, a, in a private Facebook group that still exists. Like I was texting them a few minutes ago, like it goes back years, uh, you know, where we talk about heartache together and miscarriages together. Like we just do life together and we were all really good friends in college and we just remain. So, you know, usually on Tuesday nights, like we'll all get together and play on the Xbox together. And usually we don't actually play anything. We are just sitting there talking um, oh. and it doesn't require anybody to have a headphone or a, you know, a telephone on and um, people's family will pop in or whatever. But so as um, you know, as I was working through faith and a lot of us has worked through our faith um, or politics or whatever it happens to be that we're struggling with, uh, they started a podcast and I was part of it um, called the awkward rhino, which is now, basically defunct and if you're listening buds you're aware that it is this isn't news to you don't get mad at me um (laughs) but it is what it is every once in a while i'll pop back on to see if there's a new one i'm like come on man uh but i was loosely part of that mostly i just edited it and then i realized that i could do it okay and then i decided you know with the prompting of a few close friends you know the conversations that we're having based on theology you should just say them out loud and put them out there. And then I kicked that around for a while. And then I decided, why not? Let's just go for it. And almost, gosh, November will be two years later. um, Yeah, wow. Still doing it. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, I really like your spin. Your can I say this at church? It kind of... It kind of encompasses an attitude I remember having was like, can I ask this of the church? Can I ask this of my pastor? And I think that's initially what drew me to your podcast was the title. I just was like, yeah, can I say this at church is kind of where I was mm-hmm. in my own faith and understanding what I was, what I believed and what I didn't believe anymore. So um, I, is that what, what was it that made you say that? Did you have that feeling too? Like there were things that you knew that people needed to be able to talk about, but they felt like they couldn't. Well, that, yeah, I think everybody, well, anybody, not everybody, I think if people were honest, they would admit that about every institution, not just the church. You, know, you could say that about you know, your school or your politics or your 
family or, you know, it's, it's that, it's that awkward elephant in the room that nobody wants to talk about. And I like to poke the bear. I usually have the, the head knowledge to do so. Um, and so I like to poke the bear, but the name is a spinoff from one of my good friends, Josh, that basically said, he's like, dude, I think if you say this at church, I don't think you're allowed to say that at church. And I'm like, well, why, <laughs> why can't I say this at church? I actually tried for uh, why can't I say this at church? And someone already owned the domain and I refused to pay for it. So, oh, um, yeah, which I like that it's shorter, but, um, but yeah, I think, I think most people are afraid to be truthful in church and they're, they're just used to playing whatever game, you know, they've been playing that's got them where they are. Yeah. Where, where the church is an institution is now. Yeah. Yeah. Like, like, gosh. So here's an example. So I'm aware that I go to um, an anomaly inside churches. And so we've gone, um, and I said this a lot recently, but I like it a lot. We've spent 13 weeks going through the minor prophets, you know, starting uh-huh. at the first one and then ending with, uh, is it Malachi? Yeah. Malachi. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and there was a part a few weeks ago that my pastor was like, if you're getting convicted and mad at me because you feel like I'm talking about America, I just want to be real clear. I'm not, I have not said those words once. I haven't talked about the way that we treat others once. I haven't talked about a powerful military once. I have talked about Assyria and Babylon. And so if you want to find correlations, that's probably not me convicting you. And we can talk about that if you want. But most churches, I don't think, do that. Like they stick to the handful of things that they're good at talking about. And they that that line, the, the tithe bucket, and they stick with that. And they don't push people because they're afraid of losing members. Um, but I don't think that's healthy at all. No, no, that's a good point that you bring up. I've, I've noticed, I noticed the deeper I went into verses, I would start seeing parallels with things that I've experienced within my own life, just kind of our history unfolding. So I think it's really interesting that other people are seeing that there is a lot of stuff that you, I, especially what is it? Um, second Samuel. I think it's Second Samuel. Give us a king. Mm. Are you familiar with mm-hmm. the text? Mm-hmm. I was just reading it a couple of days ago, and I just couldn't help but wonder, like, seeing how that kind of saying just seems so relevant and, and prevalent within our society right now. Like, we're at that stage. It seems like with everything, give us a king, give us a fix, give us the cure, solve the problem. And it's kind of interesting that people are understanding that they can go back into the verses and say, we've been doing this time and time and time and time and time again. When are we going to change it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we never do ever. No, no. <laughs> history yeah. has, has demonstrated that we don't learn from our history or something to that effect. Yeah. If I remember in that text, like God's like, I'll do it, but I mean, this is wrong. Yeah. But we want a King. All right, fine, fine. Let's Okay. You can have one. You're going to regret it, but whatever. Here we go. Yeah. Yeah. Here's all your consequences. Here's everything you're going to suffer from. Okay. Yep. Just give it to us, please, because then we don't have to figure it out for ourselves. There was some kind of meeting that I just recently pulled out of it. That's that's what I thought was like, that's the part where mankind like announces and proclaims, I don't want to think for myself. Because for me, I thought that was such an opportunity for the for the people of Israel to see that they could effectively fix all of their problems if they were willing to turn inside themselves. And instead they were like, no, 
can we just elect someone else to do all the hard work for me? Because I just want to like feast and circus, feast and circus. Mm -hmm. And I kind of see that that's kind of what I experience now when I look outward. That seems to be the general gist of the want of people. People don't want to be responsible for thinking and critically examining. They want someone else to do it for them. And then they want to be the cheerleader for whatever team they decide to be on and repeat their rhetoric. How how do you how do you find how do you how do you dig out of being pulled into that as a host of a podcast where you are willing to talk about controversial topics and that where you do relate them to societal issues? How do you keep yourself from taking a side and falling under and pointing the finger like everyone else? Uh, sometimes I feel like I do take a side. Do you think that I don't? Sometimes I do think you do take a side, but other times. <laughs> but then I think I'm taking a side when I'm thinking you're taking a side. So, yeah. I mean, you know, um, that's I, all perspective. But I try. So I used to be way more vocal about my opinions. And as the show has gotten more and more popular, I've found that um, if I choose a side, it will restrict the conversations that I can have, like with people that are smarter than me. And so I'm usually really intentional on not choosing a side. Um, but to be honest, it was a, um, who was it? Somebody, I can't even remember who, um, actually, no, it was Jim, Jim, uh, you know, mutual friend, uh, Jim Bonham yes. that they say, he's like, you know, just stop talking, like, just shut up. And then I read another book, you know, that basically said the same thing on Buddhism, you know, just sit down and shut up, like stop yeah. talking. And so that's what I do. Like, I find that I ask a lot of questions and I just don't say anything until I feel like the person that has answered it has said all that they can say. And then for the podcast, if I need to edit that down and make it more succinct, I can. Uh, but I find usually once people get past like that first 60 seconds of let me get my thoughts in an order, because that first 60 seconds is rambling, basically, mm -hmm. usually. Um, but after you get past that, like there is some magic there when you just let people speak without qualification. Um, and oftentimes I don't have anything to say to it, which makes it real easy. It also helps that I have some very, very vocal friends that will often say what I want to say for me and I don't have to do anything <laughs> so I can yeah. sit back and just watch other people say what I probably would have said, uh, and then learn why it was probably best that I didn't say anything at all. Yeah. And you were just recently on another podcast where you were talking about listening and I didn't get a chance to listen to it yet, but I do have it saved. But it it stuck out to me because that's kind of where I'm at, kind of on my path right now as I, and I was saying, and I feel like I'm always talking more too on top of it, but I was talking to my daughter about this and I'm like, there's a season to just listen. She just had a new baby. So I'm of course like, you need to learn how to take my grandmother advice here <laughs> and not do it, but you know, because she's, she's doing what everybody wants to do. Don't tell me how to parent. This is my kid. You know, she's kind of got that thing going on. And I'm like, yeah, I've been there. I've been there like five times. I get you. I understand. But look, I really don't want to interfere, but I do want to give you advice. And so there is a time where it's okay for you to just, this is my listening season. I'm absorbing. And of course, you know, she has to pipe back, then why are you talking? But yeah, I get that. I'm talking, but I'm giving you the advice so that I don't have to talk later. But aside from that, I've noticed that I have found more joy in listening. And really more so, I read this book called Conversations by Theodore Zeldin. And I've, I've watched him on YouTube and he's done TED Talks and he's this inspirational speaker and he wants to bring back the art of the conversation. And it was 
after I read his book while I was doing this, like, say what you mean, nonviolent communication course that I was like, yeah, I talk too much. I have too many opinions. I, I should just kind of soak in for a little bit. And so I'm realizing anyway, more and more as I'm rambling on talking and talking that I, (laughs) I've been more focused on listening to other people and, and, and realizing that my own experience is kind of boring and I want another person to kind of tell me their story and their experience, because I think in that essence alone, it's going to expand my experience and my perspective anyway. So, yeah, yeah I agree. Um, yeah. So what have you learned through listening? That I'm not all that smart. Like, <laughs> even when I think that I am, like, I'm just really not. I'm also learning um, that we that more than two people or three or four people can actually all be right at the same time, even when they disagree, um, which mm. is a big thing for me. Like, um, what is that analogy of like, you know, the elephant or like blind people touching an elephant? Or I, f- I forget exactly how you say the metaphor, oh. but like, you know, like I'm like, uh, who, what is it? So my pastor made uh, a thing last night. We were all at church. We do like a once a quarter, all get together on a Sunday night, which is about the cadence <laughs> that I can stomach. And uh, just because of time, you know, there's just so much going on. And he basically said, you know, you know, one of my favorite things is, you know, I show up to like a UVA football game or a Tennessee Titans game or a Braves game or whatever it is. It's like, you know, and I enter through, you know, gate number 101, but someone else enters through 300, someone else enters through 800. And that's entirely fine. And we're all going to have a shared experience. But my perspective is true for me and your perspective is true for you. But we are mm. all sharing in this experience together. If we could just stop yelling about it. Like we're all, we just enter the arena from a different perspective. So that's, that's the primary thing. I'm learning that I am not all that smart about many things. Uh, there are a handful of things that I would qualify that I am smart in, but not many. Um, but mostly that I can be wrong at the same time as you. And I can be right at the same time as you, even if we're saying completely different things. Yeah. I like that more. So for me too, I kind of get to the point where I, this isn't about being right or wrong at all. There's so many instances where I think we try and make it about being right and wrong. And you kind of want to go, dude, we're just talking. (laughs) Like we're just sharing information that this isn't true or false. No, that's false. Um, no, it's just opinion. Let's just, you know, it's hard to shoot the shit with people nowadays because you either have the people who are looking for trigger words so that they can be easily offended by anything that you say, or you're looking, you have other people who are looking for code words that might be, I don't know, anti-Republican or anti this side or anti what have you. And it feels like we all have to walk on eggshells with so many different people in order to maintain a conversation. And I can't help but wonder when are we going to get to the point where, and I think that's what some people, not maybe not all people, but some people might mean when they talk about the good old days. I think that I like to think anyway, and not thinking that it means something negative, that I like to think that people miss the days of conversation. They miss the days where we didn't have 5,000 choices in how to communicate with a person. Mm-hmm. We only had one way to communicate with the person, and that was face-to-face. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's something different when you're not hiding behind a keyboard. Like, the conversation you're talking about is actual community versus a mm-hmm. conversation that most people do are 140 characters on Twitter or yeah. uh, a rant that says read more on Facebook that most people don't hit the read more button. And even if you do, 
like I get mis uh, misconstrued often if I try to type something too long because you can't hear what I'm actually saying. You just read what I said, but that's not the same mm-hmm. thing as hearing what I'm saying, um, which I feel like is the right nuance there. Yes. Yeah. Because th- you take away the tone, you have everything in these character forms and the conversation when face to face or at least over the phone, you can extend more of the expression of what you're saying. So people don't have to go, what did they mean by that? What tone are you writing in? You can hear that emotion in the voice mm-hmm. where an exclamation could mean angry, where all caps could mean angry. It's actually excitement or joy or anxiety. You never know. I find I have the most honest conversations when I just talk in gifts and I don't know why. But ah. I feel like I actually hear what people are trying to say when they put mm. some motion to it. And maybe that's just my sense of humor, but I love them so much. No, I, I think, yeah, I think everybody can appreciate that. And I've, and I've noticed, too, that if you just toss in a couple little emojis, you can soften your whole conversation. Like, oh, but there's a smiley face right there. Oh, well, she's probably not angry why she's typing that. You know, it's like <laughs> yeah. sometimes those additional um, points of expression do help. It, the 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 gifts are like the sarcasm sign sometimes too. Like it was a joke. There's a sarcasm like, sign. Sure. Yeah, well, you don't have one. No, what is it? Oh, I have one. It's just hanging above my head because literally I'm always sarcastic and I have to. Oh, oh so it's like an actual. It's like an actual. I thought there was like a. a like a grammatical note that I could type in for sarcasm. Oh, no. No, I always have to walk around my house like, I was being sarcastic. Didn't you hear me? Like, I went monotone. <laughs> <laughs> there should be one. I'm going to I'm gonna petition the people that make the you things should. to make a, a sarcasm. Um, what do they call them? Emojis? No, 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 no. Like, I need a, like a comma or a semicolon. Or oh, yeah. I need some I kind need of one. a special character mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. like quotations, but not quotations like squiggly quotations. There we go. Squiggly. <laughs> I like that. Squiggly quotations. That's good. <laughs> so I was thinking over the weekend. I don't even remember how I got. Yes, I do. Alexa. You mentioned you had an Alexa. Mm-hmm. And then do you recall that I, I told you that I asked you if you were familiar with 1984? Mm hmm. Yep. Okay, so that's where my mind went. As soon as I saw that, I was like, he has an Alexa mm-hmm. and he talks to it. And then, okay, so my daughter tried to bring one in the house and I <laughs> freaked out on her. <laughs> so here's my question. You don't worry that that's that whole big brother thing that you're just inviting into your home willingly? No. Or are you one of those people that are like, I don't have anything to hide. I'm not really all that concerned if people really want to record my information. They're getting really boring stuff. Uh, no, I am concerned if people want to record my information. However, I am aware that my smartphone already is because if I say the words, mm. hey, Siri, it's going to wake up or hey, Google, it's going to wake up. And so for those of you that had your phone on speakerphone, I just screwed your phone up. And ha, the <laughs> joke's on you. Um, but so I'm aware that it's already happening. And so is my laptop. And so are most things. Like, so, and even if it's not my phone, it's your phone listening to this conversation now. You know, so um, it's not that I don't have anything to hide. Like, if the government wanted to come do something to me, I am one unarmed dude. And even if I had all the arms, um, you know, it wouldn't matter. Uh, so for me, I would just 
if I read the terms of service, their privacy policy is decent. Apple's privacy policy is decent. You read privacy policies, don't you? Like mm-hmm. before you click anything, are you one of those guys? Mm-hmm. Well, you are a banker. Yeah, I read it you all. Wanna, I read everything. You want to dot your eyes and um, cross your teeth. I don't know if you've ever noticed, but like I don't really put a lot of pictures on Facebook of my kids ever. Yeah. Um, because Facebook owns the rights to my children's faces. And so yeah. I, I will post thoughts. I'll post my ideas. I will post my picture. But I try my hardest not to give away my child's likeness and build a persona yeah. for them. You know what I mean? Without their express written permission. Because in six years, my son will be 16 and he will have a uh, uh, persona that he has to either fight against or fit into and i'm afraid to screw it up but that is a that is a tangent um and my wife does not agree with that she'll just post willy-nilly and i it's not a fight i'm gonna win and she's an adult (laughs) so whatever um but no alexa i find it just convenient mostly um it's fun to play with the kids on it so there's that um old town road song that is ridiculously addictive right my gosh and have you heard all versions of it um well i prefer the nine inch nails uh instrumental version that it's sampled from um oh yeah i'll send it to you um it's there's no music i'm sorry there's no words but uh but everything's a sample of something else but um there's a uh if so you don't have an alexa it sounds right correct no, a series disabled. I don't use touch <laughs> nothing. No, I'm I'm one of them people. That's fine. Um, <laughs> if, if that works I am for not you. willingly giving you too much. Like Facebook, I get it. You you took all that. But I have a nice Google search results because of that. If, so. um, um, well, I only search in uh, private browsing mode. I don't use the real internet. So it doesn't track my cookies ever. Um, I, I only search in a private browser. I don't I don't really ever use the real Google. Um if that the makes real Google. yeah, not the one that I'm logged in. Like I'm always in a private browsing mode. Um, I have a separate incognito. Mm-hmm. I have a separate browser that I'm not logged into anything on. It's just like the guest version. So uh, the search results, as soon as I end the session, aren't aren't cached to me. Um, but there's a, a thing that you can do called routines, and so I basically made it say where when my youngest says Alexa, play Old Town Road. Um, and so I'll pause and let everyone's Alexis freak out. There we go. We did it. You're, you're welcome. Um, <laughs> it basically said, you know, under new federal regulation, this song has been outlawed. Would you like to proceed playing the songs? Possible punishment includes five years in prison. And what? I just let it say, and I, oh, I made it. So basically I programmed it to where when I say this, you need to say this. Had they said oh. play old 10 road again. It would have played, but I let it stay like that for a few weeks. Uh, and I got that from a friend of mine, actually somebody that I met from the podcast. And I was like, this is great. And so now I really just use it as a way to to, to really screw with the kids. Um, but, oh my gosh, that is so. <laughs> oh yeah, it's, it's so fun. Um, but it, it gets it gets to where it knows. Like, so yeah, I think that thing was, I told it to play me some music and it was like Sublime that came on, um, which I like Sublime. And um, yeah, Sublime's good. And, uh, but it gets, I mean, we use it a lot for cooking as well. Like, you know, set a timer for 12 minutes. You know, and it'll it'll pop off uh, when it's ready or whatever. So, but no, Nifty. I I like it. It's cheap entertainment, and again, my phone's already listening. So that's true. I I'm I'm very well aware that sometimes we'll have conversations, and someone will say CIA, and I'm like, they're listening. Be quiet. <laughs> you know, but I I do that just to joke with my. I kids. will I say don't I don't know crazy. what was listening, but we went to Disney uh, in March of this year, and mm-hmm. my wife and I don't have cable. We just have like Netflix and Hulu and Amazon Prime. And, um, 
all we saw was Disney ads every time we turned on Hulu to watch something. And I swore up and down. I'm like, and then the moment that we got back, zero ads for Disney. I was like, what is happening here? Because um, we actually, it was a gift from her father. So we actually didn't search or buy any of it. Like it was, it was a gift. And um, yeah, so it's not, it wasn't like it was in my email or I don't even know how it got there. I was just really weird. I haven't seen a Disney commercial since we got back. Interesting. They're on to me. Well, you didn't have to hit that already purchased when when you dismissed the ad. They already knew you purchased it. So they're like, we're not going to be too <laughs> redundant for them right now. We want them to come back. So why did that um again. why did that make you think of 1984? Um, because that's where I go. I think about Big Brother and I like sat there for a little bit and I was like, you know, people are willingly inviting Big Brother into their homes because it's not a brother, it's a sister. It's a girl, <laughs> it's a feminine voice. <laughs> So they're like, oh, Alexa, Siri. No, they're not listening. They're not recording. I, you know, it's a, it's a nice, friendly woman's voice that I'm inviting in to help me with my grocery list and set timers for my cookies so I don't burn them. But mm-hmm. I don't know. That's mm-hmm. just where I go. You know Maybe that you I can make it a little say, bit too much. What's that? You know you can make it respond to a computer or a few other things as well. If you wanna, if you wanna have more fun with it, you can change the voice to a guy if you wanted to. Can you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, but that's the selling point. It's not as aggressive or hostile because it's a female voice. That's true. I'm just going to stick with that. Oh, I try because lately everything, I think, and maybe I just picked it up and I just started reading it the other day. Oh, I was thinking about what is truth. I always think about that one question that Pontius Pilate asked Jesus. It's like one of those questions I always go back to and I think, why didn't he ask him that? And why didn't he answer? And so, yeah, I was reading 1984. I think I picked it up after I saw your Alexa commentary. I picked up 1984 and then talking about the ministry of truth and how truth comes through the form of media and and entertainment and news and art. And I thought, hmm, what is truth? And then that brought me back to the verse. And so I'm asking and I'm like, why would Pontius Pilate ask Jesus such a an enormous complex question and not give him the time or the space to answer it? Or did Jesus kind of give him that look like, dude, you know, you shouldn't ask me such a such a profound question right now. You're about to crucify me. I don't have time to answer this. You know, and so that made me think like, okay, well, what did Pontius Pilate believe? And so I went down this rabbit hole. So like your Alexa comment really took me down a rabbit hole. And that's why I had asked you about that because I'm like, well, I think Seth likes rabbit holes. Mm-hmm, I do. Sometimes it seems like, have you ever literally stepped in a rabbit hole? I've stepped in a gopher hole and cussed a lot. Yeah. Yeah. See, I've stepped in rabbit holes. I've mowed over like fox dens too and almost tipped over my mower. So Mm. it can actually like break your legs. Maybe that's why people avoid getting into them verbally. I don't know. But so that was my thought. So I'm like, have you ever thought about that question? That one question is, it seems like so many like, like theologians and writers and speakers always come to that profound question at some point too and try and answer it or answer why it wasn't answered. What do you think about it or do you? Of what truth is? What is truth and why would Pilate ask such? He had to have known what kind of a question that was to ask, right? Can I just say, give me Barabbas? Is that, does that work? Well, <laughs> it does. I mean, you it could. Does. It doesn't. Right. That's the next verse, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, I think it is. <laughs> um, yeah, because he doesn't give Jesus long enough of a time to respond. Um, so truth. I think um, truth is both concrete 
and subjective because uh, there are concrete truths like, um, gosh, like binary code, like ones and zeros. It just works. Like it's, yeah, it just, it's, it's true. Two plus two is two. And it doesn't matter what language you speak. Like there are some truths, but when it comes to morals and points of view, um, the best thing, and I've written it down, um, because I have grandiose ideas of maybe writing, uh, something for myself one day, whether or not it ever gets published, I don't care. It'll just be for me, much like the podcast. It's mostly for me and I'm glad that just other people you. like it, but it's really cathartic for me to, to, you know, just to do it and to be public about it. Um, but I, th- I find that truth for me are things that I, what's the best way to say this truth for me are things that I can't reduce any further and truth for me is almost always something that it will be realized tomorrow, which is really what makes me wake up in the morning. Like I'm going to figure out something today that I didn't understand tomorrow. And it's going to be life altering lens shifting. And that doesn't mean that tomorrow or yesterday was untrue, but it does mean that tomorrow is possibly more true. And that is a really bad way of explaining it, but I don't have a better way. No. So you combine. So maybe. Yeah. You combine it. Truth is both objective and subjective. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, compound interest exists, but I'm yeah. also fully aware that there are bigger things to life than facts. And those are also true. Right. Because truth comes from experience and touch and feelings and, and, and just lived, experienced present moments. It's not just... I, I get caught up in that too. I see a lot of people just look at truth as like, it's just math. It's either yes or no. It's either true or false. It's either zero or one. It's either black or white. But in a lot of cases, I mean, I know, I think I, I think that seems to be a really common problem, even when I'm trying to have some kind of an informal argument, like online, when discussing a big concept is some people are so hardlined for that whole black or white, yes or no, right or wrong, true or false, that they can't. I don't know, incorporate the tension that it's both objective and subjective, similarly in the way that like love can be both objective and subjective. And when, when you start playing around with those boundaries, people are like, no, I think I'm supposed to stop you here. Mm-hmm. This does have a box. And, and so it's hard to tell people, no, it, it really doesn't have to have a box. It it can, it can be limitless. Yeah. Yeah. So not where, where I thought you'd take that. Where did, when I asked where you, did that, you think I, I would like, take it? I don't know. I don't know. I figured you'd flex your intellectual muscle. <laughs> um, um, I, well, again, I'm not as smart as I thought that I was. <laughs> eh, I don't know. You, you're, you're still pretty good mental competition, if you ask me. You throw down some, you know, you, you, both, you, you both share concepts that sometimes are just so unfamiliar. And then at the t- same time, I can't help but wonder if some, sometimes you share concepts that you know might poke that controversial line mm-hmm. and maybe you're kind of looking to see how other people react. Oh, that's a hundred. That is a hundred percent true. Like for instance, that Amazon article, uh, the video that I posted today about yeah. the forest, like I liked what he had to say. And to be honest, I didn't hear that part that you commented on, 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 um, you know, the, the, the racist aspects of it. I probably had stopped listening by then. Cause he had me when he's like, you know, it's not that the Amazon is burning. It's that we're burning. Yeah. It's like, it's that we set it on fire. Um, yeah. it, it, but I do, sometimes I will post things and my wife will tell me often, like sometimes like you're way too controversial 
And I'm like, really? All I said was one sentence. She's like, yeah, but you make people have to pick a side and most people don't want to. And I'm like, well, that's, that's kind of a you problem. I don't know how that's a <laughs> new problem. It's kind of a you problem. Yeah. But other times I just like to, oh, this is cool. You know, posted with no comment. This is neat. You know, kind of thing. Yeah. 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 No, I, 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 I'm the same way. I, some, man, I remember one time I posted something that just had so many people upset with it. I think I said something like Paul was a stoic. And I had so many people going, don't you dare say that. What are you talking about? You don't know what you're talking about. And I just thought, why couldn't he have been though? Why can't we push the boundary? When you want to push the boundary that somebody has already used to define not only that concept, but also their selves, they get really hostile. And it takes me back to this whole idea of attachment and detachment. So many people attach themselves to the concepts that they agree with. Mm -hmm. Whenever you try and push against it, whenever you try and contradict it, it's like in so many instances, you get this backfire effect and they just dig their heels in deeper to just, again, go back to this whole I'm right, you're wrong thing. Yeah. But I, but what I appreciate about you have, and I'm sure you notice this too, when I share things that are controversial, I see a lot of, I see some people who are willing to go, I don't know how I feel about this. I see it from this angle. I see it from this angle. But I want to know more about this or that before I make a decision. Do you see that there's people like that that you interact with? And are they more of a minority? Oh, they're definitely a minority. Um, I think there's probably more people that are like that than would it, would be public about it, though. I just don't think most people... Um, I think most people are afraid to uh, alienate themselves from a mm. comfort level of different people if they say something. Um, but I just don't care if I alienate myself, but I like the people that will both challenge me, give me new information and also hold, uh, hold that tension intentionally of, of disagreement. Uh, you know, there are people like, for, like, like for instance, Alexander Shia is one like that. Like we'll, we'll, we'll talk weekly, sometimes multiple times during the week. And, you know, it, he will allow, like he'll push back when we need to push back um, and give me a different perspective or send me, like I literally asked him something the other day about, you know, homosexuality in the church. And he's like, you know, I feel like you don't want my answer. What you would need is a resource. So here's a, it was like a thousand page resource. I was like, okay, it's a good answer. He's like, but for real, like th- page 300 or so go with that one, you know, get, get out there. So, which it is, it's a huge, I forget what the name of it is. I bought it in the digital copy, like a huge compilation of, all a lot of the the sins of the Catholic Church, um, mm. uh, sexual repression uh, in in seminaries, every, uh, and it is hauntingly heartbreaking. Um, I, I don't actually ever recommend it to anyone because it is so depressing, uh, but worthwhile, really? worthwhile. But yeah, I don't think people, um, I don't think people are afraid to think that other people are right. I think they're afraid to publicly admit that because. When I say that you're right, Danielle, it usually means that I'm saying that I'm wrong. Um, But that's not usually what I'm actually saying. Yeah. It just means that I'm in agreement with the information you've shared. And based on what you've shared, it makes sense, maybe even logically and more specifically theologically. Yeah. What do you, I've been noticing a lot of people pushing back and kind of trying to diminish theology as a whole. 
Have you, are you familiar with anyone in your social circles who want to push back against this whole expert theological idea and the credit that a lot of people try to take with it and, and kind of more or less putting themselves up on a higher platform and looking down at people who don't invest, you know, thousands of hours into Greek and Hebrew translation or taking all of the courses and understanding all of the discourses and understanding all of the dogmas and deconstructing all of the doctrines and then turning around and becoming a Brian Zond or a Brad Jerzak or uh, a Greg Boyd. Yeah. Well, I mean, A, those people are all fairly brilliant, although I would probably disagree with all three of those people you just listed off on different things. Um, Oh, yeah, me too. Which is fine. (laughs) Totally fine. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think... I think that those people are few and far between. And I think if they have a network to help elevate themselves, they can be successful in that lifestyle. But I tend to disengage with those that seem to be wanting to look down on people that either don't have a platform or aren't interested in building their own. I just, I'm not, I'm not interested in that. I would rather show the world how someone else is smart about something. Um, like I, I tell my staff all the time at the bank, like my job as your manager is not to do everything better than you. My job is to figure out what you're good at and make you shine at it because that makes me look good and it makes the bank look good and it's going to get you promoted, which is good for you and your career. And I think that's the same with theology. Like not everybody needs to be an Old Testament scholar. Um, mm-hmm. Most people don't. We do need those people, but you also need people um, that are archaeological scholars that don't know anything about the theology because that's what breathes life into the text, you know, as as things are excavated and we get more context. So if someone wants to flaunt their knowledge as a weapon against someone else, be it theology or anything else, unless you're like a neurosurgeon, which I find genuinely impressive, I just don't. I just don't want to have a part of that at all because I can easily flex my banking knowledge or economics knowledge on other people as well and make people feel small. But what purpose does that use? Like that shows that has no purpose. It's not helpful, especially because I'm not in any capacity to use any of that knowledge. <laughs> Matter of fact, I don't, I don't use most of it. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. It disconnects. It dis- disconnects us big time from each other and, and creates more divisions when we want to kind of, use our, I don't know, expert knowledge as a way to show everybody else how much more I get it. Sometimes for me, I think it's like some people get so stuck on these ideas that these theologians work and and and, and writings are the ones that need to be admonished and edified the most. And then this person had problematic understanding on this concept over here. So altogether, they should be completely dismissed. And I think, okay, but it, that why aren't all of those perspectives worthy of just at least listening to? No. And then why can't we all make our own individual decisions to go, I don't like that. I do like that. I like what that guy said about that thing in particular. And we don't have to either take them all as a whole or dismiss them all as a whole. Like, yeah. I think about that. There there are a lot of great writers out there where like, if you inform me on what kind of a person they were in life, Oh, they were a horrible person. They did this, this, this. Yeah, I know, but that moment where they wrote that thought demonstrated that they were thinking about something higher than themselves or something that was so inspiring enough that it could potentially influence and, and 
significantly shift a perspective and a dynamic for somebody else. And we get into this habit of like, if there's anything bad about you, if there's one stain on you, then you as an entire person has to be dismissed. And I think that's, it's just so limiting of the possibility of connection too, when we're willing to do that. And we're, we're so willing to, to shut down the idea that only certain people ought to be listened to instead of all people. Yeah. No, I think everyone should be listened to, though I do think there are genuinely foolish ideas. Uh, and yeah. I think that you have to judge people's past. You know, I don't want to say past because I find when, when you know, the social media tells me what I said a decade ago, I'm like, God, you are such a such an idiot. Who is this yeah. person? That, like, I don't even recognize that human anymore, which I oh, think yeah. is good. I think it's good. But like you, you can look at recent history of what people have said and kind of evaluate, you know, whether or not they're off their rocker. That still doesn't mean they can't say something truthful when they're off their rocker. Yeah. Um, and I'll use an example, though I don't want to turn political um, at all, because I, I try to not as much as I can be overtly political. Although for those that know me, it's not, you don't have to look very far to figure out where I stand with things. Um, we'll make an exception. Yeah. So for instance, um, with the, so here we go. So when I say fool, so like foolish behavior, I, I tend to write off uh, people overall based on repetitive foolish behavior. Uh, and when I say write them off, like I just don't care what they have to say anymore, which yeah. is probably to my detriment, but it drives me batty. Like for instance, um, with the, with the, with the terrorists with China, you know, the president mm -hmm. basically said, Oh, we're not going to do it. And then the, I'm sorry, the White House said, yeah, we're actually going to roll those back. And then minutes later, just kidding, for real talk, y'all, we're going to go in even further. Like I, you, enough of that. Like you can't, you can't constantly contradict yourself and have any credibility with me. Um, yeah. Regardless of your party, it doesn't matter. I don't have to agree with your politics, but I need you to be consistent because I, if not, I don't have a clue how to take you, you know? Mm. Yeah, no, I, I, I find that I kind of gravitate away towards those who are more annoying and, and I avoid the Twitter feeds and the, and the updates of, you know, whatever fool is making the headlines again. I just kind of think I'm not even, you're not getting my energy. Mm -hmm. Like I'll listen to everybody else talk about, it. I have so many people message me all the time wanting to talk very spit and it's mostly my friends who just I, I'm assuming just don't want to take that political conversation to like their social media feed. So let's do it in Messenger on Marco Polo or whatever. Let's talk this way outside of the sphere. But so many people just want to have an outlet to vent about the incredulous, you know, demonstrations and the rhetoric and the propaganda and all of the stuff they're seeing. And it's like do we live in a twilight zone? <laughs> and so when it gets to that point, you have to go, I'm just not, uh, I'm a la 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 and shove my fingers in my ears and try and just maneuver around it. Yeah. Because I hear you on that. It's like, sometimes you're like, you just can't take anything that person says then just ignore it there. And I mean, I have siblings like that where I'm like, just, just let her talk and and compliment her for talking, but you know, don't. <laughs> you said the don't words. Don't listen to anything you she said. said. The words you did it. <laughs> <laughs> Look at your exactly. You have a masterful skill with syllables. I'm proud of you as a human. <laughs> yes, yeah. yes. The enunciation was wonderful as well. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Okay, so. 
I recall you saying on one of your podcasts that emotions are a challenge for you. Mm -hmm. And I know that as we're both reading this book together and this book study we're doing, Alexander Shia's Heart and Mind, um, we have to tackle some kind of, we have to tackle a lot of tensions and our emotions. And I'm wondering, are you noticing that you're surrendering yourself a little bit more to your emotions? I think it was a couple months back, you said on your podcast, you still struggle with emotions. Mm -hmm. And I'm just wondering, what kind of growth have you seen from yourself? And what kind of ease have you seen in your surrender to your emotions? Or are you seeing enough? I haven't seen much ease, um, but I am. (laughs) um, Because I don't, so for me, emotions elicit a lack of control. Like I, like I can feel, um, I can feel like I'm no longer adequate to contribute to a conversation. If like, I, I, there's something in me, I can feel when emotions kick in, like I forget how to put coherent sentences together and I can't mm. form arguments anymore. And so for me, I feel like I lose value. Although I was a, a few months ago, I told my wife, it's like, I am, I'm going to have to lean in to this and fix it. Um, and so I've been doing so, but I, about every day, Daniel, like I feel listless. Like I literally feel, um, loss isn't the word. Like I know right where I'm at. Uh, but I, my mooring is entirely, uh, different every single day. And so I find myself latching on to something, anything, beauty, a, an old woman that, you know, just needs a hug. Like it doesn't matter what it is. Like I find myself latching on to something that I can control and I'm weathering the emotions as opposed to, I haven't found a way to actually embrace them, use them, sit with them um, at all even a little bit. Uh, but like, and it's, and it's hard because for me, once like that, that vessel has been cracked open, whatever I'd had, everything tucked behind. Like I was watching the movie brave with my kids the other day. We just rented the movie on Amazon. It was last Friday actually. And, and I'd never seen the movie. And like, I struggled with that movie. I'm like, Oh man, this, and this guy lost his leg. I can't, you know, and, and his wife turns into a bear. How often do I turn into a bear? Oh, I'm such a horrible father. Oh, I can see myself in that. I just, I can't, I can't, I can't stop going to Whoa. from one to the next, to the next, to the next. And so I just basically kind of check out. Like I literally try to like track with the fan, like, like literally watch the fan blade spin just to focus on something that is numerical, if that makes sense. I am never going to look at Merida the same way again. Mer- I'm really not. Is Merida the mom? No, she's the daughter. But I mean, just thinking about what what she experienced watching her mom become the bear. Now, now that you say that, I've, I've become how many how many times have I become a bear? And I'm sitting here going, God, yeah. yeah. I mean, at Mama the end of the movie, at the end of the movie, like she's literally crying because she didn't. I mean, spoiler alert: if you haven't watched a fifteen-year-old movie, that's or ten-year-old, that's your fault. Um, <laughs> so, but like at the end, where she's like, you know, I didn't mend it, and you can tell, like that little girl, the redheaded girl, Meredith, she's just heartbroken. Like, like she was selfish. I'm often selfish. She literally manipulated her mom, and it changed mm. her mom into the true version of her mom hateful, aggressive, bearish, which apparently was inherited because that also happened to their forefathers. You know what I mean? And it's ripped Mm -hmm. apart families and nobody's dealt with the trauma and nobody's worked through it. She couldn't fix it with anything but 
just surrender to, I know what I have to do. I've got to swallow my pride. I've got to get this done. And then I still fail. And not only did it impact, like it impacted her brothers, it impacted her dad. Her dad tried to kill her mom. Like there's just too much there. And, and the mom just so quickly, you know, slips into a savage animalistic version of themselves, which is how I feel when I wrestle with emotions, like the parts of my brain that filter things, stop filtering things. And I am hateful and I cut people down and I'm not a good dad, barely a good husband. And so I don't like it, but I have to figure out how to get through it because eventually um, I think that I have to, or whatever I'm supposed to be, I'll never become. Hmm. You'll never become? I don't know how without embrace, because emotions are there. So I can either continue to suppress them, which I think will cause damage, um, yeah. or I can figure out how to not and see how they're useful and how I can healthily be involved in them. Because using my emotions isn't going to happen. Um, I have to be involved. I think I have to be involved with them. Interesting. That makes me want to ask you all sorts of questions about your childhood. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm also just, how the heck do you philosophically break down a Disney movie like that? Like, do you've never seen it before in the first time through? I had to watch Finding Nemo <laughs> like at least 19 times and Wally at least 40. Oh, Wally is before a I great started. movie. Wally, God, great Wally's movie. incredible. Yeah. But I mean, I'm always in the moment in the song, watching the expressions on my kids' faces, kind of looking at it that way, memorizing the cute lines, of course, before I get down to philosophically breaking it down. I mean, I was 38 years old when I decided to look at green eggs and ham and go, there's something deeper here. <laughs> and then I did. And I was like, holy crap, there's like a whole bunch of philosophy written mm -hmm. on this darn mm -hmm. book. Um, uh, curious, the little things I feel like I'm missing out on by not expanding my Google search horizon sometimes. <laughs> like, what is the What is the philosophy behind green eggs and ham is literally what I typed in. You're not the first person to tell me that about the way that I break things down. Like I forget it's been two different guests and I know one of them was Luke Norsworthy and the pun, the pun level of that episode was rather high. Uh, Cause I like puns and he likes puns and I wow. were both from Texas, both from the nasty, dirty desert of Texas. And I said something and he's like, I think the fact that you can find the beauty in this desert that we grew up in is you see the world differently. And so lean into that. Um, and someone else said something similar the other day, but I've always done that. Like I, I don't overanalyze everything. I think I just rip apart the things that hurt me in, in whatever yeah. it is. And I just ignore the other things. Like I couldn't tell you the name of the dad. He didn't interest me. The, like I not, a lot of things didn't interest me in the movie, but once the mom was, you know, transformed because of the selfishness of the child that interests me. Um, so Interesting. It sounds like you've got some stuff that's coming close up to the surface that wants to escape. I if guess. it's triggering that, I that's guess. just that's just what I would think about myself. Because, I mean, there's some shows that'll make me cry every time I watch an episode. Grey's Anatomy is one of them. And I was binging it over the last week because I haven't watched it in a few years. I've watched them all. Which one makes you cry? Oh, which one doesn't make you cry? <laughs> Honestly, I think I cried in every episode. The Derek Shepard death one, I had me bawling for weeks. No. I was like, they can't take him off the show. But yeah. anyway. Yeah. Um, so I, I'll break. So I've watched every episode because that's my wife's like, that's her jam. And so I watch it because I want to be with her. And so I hate the show and I hate it 
And now that I tell you this, it'll probably break the show for you. Like every eight episodes, it's the same show. You just change out the main characters. It's every eight episodes, it recycles the exact same material. So it was Derek, and then it was actually uh, Meredith's sister. And then after that, nope, we need somebody new. So it's got to be, um, uh, uh, who's the, the old old chief that is an alcoholic? What's his name? Um, Richard. Oh, Richard. Richard's wife, she's going to have to die. And eight more episodes, oh, we have to have uh, this wedding thing where someone dies. And then eight more episodes, oh, now we need this person has cancer, and so next season she'll probably also have to suffer and die. Like it's every eight to nine episodes. There's and so it's so form wow. it's like so formulaic that I'll tell my wife, well, we've only only got three more episodes with this person alive. I mean, you want to probably just start getting your heart right, and she just looks at me like I can't believe you. You're doing it again. It's just oh, formulaic, but it sells ads. Um, but Sleeping at Last movie music is in that show, and they have great music. I love that show for the music. So Yeah, I noticed that. Um, I think it was ever since you shared that Sleeping at Last Enneagram podcast. He's all over I, the place. Man, I downloaded his whole Enneagram album, and I, oh, God, I was listening to it every day over and over and over and over and over. And then when I started picking up on Grace, I'm like, wait. Is that That's him. is that Lauren Daigle? And then I was like, wait, is that sleeping at last? And I'm like, wait a minute, he wouldn't be on Grace. What do oh, you yeah. mean? I hop online and I'm like, whoa, his stuff that is, was him. His stuff is everywhere. He's in a lot of things. You know what? Grey's Anatomy has always been killer with their soundtracks. So I'm not gonna lie. I love their soundtracks. They they pick good music. Maybe that's why I cry every episode. It's the music. Maybe it's not even the rep- repetitive, same old eighth or ninth death it's just the music that i don't know but anyway what i was saying is i think i come to realizations at the end of every show like i've been doing that or i've been misstepping this in my life or i've been projecting that and it's like oh i've learned something from grace this week and now i can make some kind of graceful transformation elsewhere who knows so <laughs> Shonda Rhimes does it for right? Yeah, catharsis. Well, I do like her little roller coaster thing at the end. It's great. I like it. It's one of my favorite parts of the show. Oh, Shonda Land. Mm-hmm. Shonda Land. It's really good. Uh, it's animated yeah, well. It's I like cute. it. Makes me happy. Very very cool. <laughs> okay, so I've been I've been questioning this myself and using it as a teaching tool for myself. So I'm going to ask you, what has been the most difficult challenge about parenting that you have learned to accept as a gift and it has in turn helped transform how you relate to everybody. Can you say that again for the people in the back row? For the, for, okay. I'll say it real slowly. Okay. Ready? Catch my syllables Uh here. uh (laughs) What has been one of the most difficult challenges that you have faced as a parent that you have learned to accept as a gift and then in turn have been able to take what you've learned from that and kind of project it towards how you treat other people. What about the struggles of parenting has made you accept it as a gift and taught you how to transform it and spread it outward? Oh yeah. Yeah. So um, I think kids will either break a marriage or um, strengthen a marriage. And so for my wife and I, Um, I think that's what it is. So the way that I've learned to relate to my wife has been changed, drastically changed from who we are. You know, each kid also, you know, exponentially changed it. Um, The way that I've learned to give other people space and by other people, I mean my wife, 
uh, the way that I've learned when it matters to argue and what's even worth arguing about. Um, and also learned when I've reached my limit. And I think she also has learned, you know, our, our subliminal triggers because we were never that way with each other. Like what my, nobody makes me more quickly angry. That's a bad sentence. Um, it doesn't matter. I can't go back. You did great with your syllables though. <laughs> well, they were, they were all <laughs> words. I just don't think they're in the right order, but no one gets me off my rocker faster than my son. Um, it just, and I don't know why, like with both of my daughters, I am the most compassionate. You get 28 tries, but with my son, for some reason, I expect, I I just expect, and that's, I don't even know what the right words to put after expect is I just expect, and you can fill in Mm. the blank of whatever it is. And so my wife knows that, but I've learned and then taken that to other people of how to give space, how to recognize when I am invading space unhealthily. And then how to just disengage and let someone else come in and do the job that I can't do at the moment because I'm just not in a place to do it. Mm, I like that. Do you find that when you, I'm just curious if you ever feel it. So Shonda Rhimes, since we've already spoken about her, she actually did, I think it was like a Ted talk where she talked about um, what she needed to do to kind of like break her writer's block. And what she found worked for her was that she just started playing with her kids. Like she was like, I lost the most basic pleasure of life in playing and imagining. And this was around the time where I was like doing some things where I was implementing new ways to prevent myself from getting a writer's block because I was struggling at the time too. And I was into this whole, I'm going to go paint. I always had this vision when I was a kid that it was going to be one of those like artists in France, like looking over the Eiffel, holding my palette over my canvas <laughs> and painting. Do it. But then it's like, well, that's not going to, I've done it now. I actually painted the Eiffel. I did it at a, what? I was drunk too. You know, those little painting classes you can do with your girlfriends uh-huh. or your guy friends. So I, I did paint the Eiffel. In Paris? Um, no, oh. in Olivia, Minnesota at a bar. It was still fun. I pretended I was in Paris. I know a little French. Um, but, but what I noticed was I had to force myself to get back to playing again to really kind of like open up my eyes a little bit into kind of like, I don't know, I don't pull some stuff out because I think everything was clogged up. So I'm just wondering if you ever find, and it's not only that they they create they spark a creativity. It's like sometimes when I'm watching my kids, they say some of the, you know, they say the darndest things, but you're like, you have no idea the philosophical breakdown of the concepts that people have been trying to wrap their heads around for centuries that you just like unveiled to me. You know, like I want to tell that to my kid, like, do you know, I've been struggling with this concept for the last seven weeks. And you just telling me that sentence about five nights at Freddy's suddenly made me realize what the answer was. Do you ever have moments like that where your kids just reveal this creative spark or aha moment when all you're just trying to do is be like present with them and playing with them and, and just trying to not be an adult. (laughs) And then it like unleashes this enormous like fire for you to just go create and do. No. So I don't know that my kids unleash anything in me that I want to go do, but I do find that they do Uh, have way more truth than adults do. And I don't think it's just my kids. I just think kids. Mm, I think the fact that they have a limited vocabulary, but the intellect of an adult without the life experience 
makes it where they really can only speak in lies or in truth. Like they can only manipulate or they can only be truthful. Um, and I think parents are smart enough to figure out which one is which. But because there's like limitations on what they know how to say, but I am fully, like I am fully aware that my four-year-old is smarter than I am. Like she already, <laughs> like I I know that she, like she just, some of the things she does, I'm like, man, you are sharp as a tack. I don't know what she's going to do with it. I hope she does something with it. But I think the fact that she has the vocabulary of a four-year-old allows her to say things way more truthful than you or I could. Um, but so would anybody's, I think, four-year-old for the most part. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and and so, I, but they don't really, they give me aha moments and I'll jot it down and I usually just in, in, interpolate it into what I'm reading or doing at the time. But it doesn't really ever spark me to do other things. They're questions to me, Will. Um, they'll, they'll lead me on rabbit holes. Like, uh, but the questions are really simplistic questions. Like, um, you know, my, my son was asking about Noah the other day and, uh, my daughter and I have talked about Nineveh, um, you know, and, and the way that those work. And I, I do my best mm-hmm. to ride that line of, of too much knowledge without boring a seven-year-old. But my yeah. son and I, the other day, he said something about you know time and you can't i forget where we went with it but effectively it turned into you know time is actually a different dimension buddy and it turned into a big lesson on you know there's been twins in nasa one was at the space station for a year the other one was at home and we researched it we watched about it and he's like huh and then he actually said he's like so every time we go to the movies like we're we're always watching a not the 3d version but a 4d version i'm like yes you get it absolutely yes if that makes any sense, but they don't really compel me to yeah. do creative things just to play no. more. So just to play more. Yeah. I find menial labor does like when I'm mowing the grass is when I have ideas or when I'm just sweeping out the basement or like menial tasks that I can go on autopilot to do. That's, mm-hmm. that's when I have new ideas, things that require no thought to do. Ah, uh, yeah. Those are, those are my favorite times too. mowing the lawn and hanging the laundry on the line. It's like I get my those are where I get my shower thoughts, not actually in the shower. I've tried to I've tried. That's hard because you're in the shower and then you got to get out and you got to dry off and then you got to go get dressed. And by the time you get downstairs to write down the idea you had in the shower, you've forgotten it. Well, and it's expensive. I mean, hot water is expensive. Right. And however long you're thinking on this thought. Yeah, it's, it's costing money. <laughs> well, <laughs> well. I think that's a a great conversation. And before we head out of here, Seth, I would love for you to tell our listeners how they can connect with you and how they can find out more about Can I Say This at Church. So if you would please share with the listeners. So um, I've become fairly easy to find on the internet. So just Seth Price. Um, But the the fastest way is probably um, just go to Can I Say This at Church.com. And there's, I forget what the, page is called but it's like about me or something like that and there's a really old picture that i had more hair there and a little bit about me and then links to social media there Uh, but if you want to get in touch with me um the show is probably the easiest way i i use the personal twitter and the personal facebook and personal instagram uh way too infrequently for that to be a good spot to get a hold of me 
Um, yeah, the, the show has sucked up all of the free time. Um, so that's the best way to get in touch with me. To connect with me or to see what else I'm working on, I encourage you to find me on patreon.com slash Danielle Kingstrom. My written work is also featured on Patheos Progressive Christian, and you can connect with me on social media, Facebook at Danielle Kingstrom, Instagram and Twitter at D Kingstrom. And until next time, thank you for listening. Take care. <laughs>